Hello, I'm Mike LeBar. And I'm Scott Soshnick. On this weekly podcast, we explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. On this week's show, we speak with the athletic director of Syracuse University, John Wildhack. But first, let's look at some of the top stories of the week. And joining us is Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi Williams. And it is a busy week. Let's start with some big news about the Alibaba Group holding executive vice chairman Joe Tsai. And it looks like he is about to join the NFL if he gets his way. Some e-commerce billionaires are, are, are pairing up. As you said, Joe Tsai joining Michael Rubin, uh, the man who runs Fanatics uh, in their bid group to uh, to buy the Carolina Panthers, the NFL team that's been up for sale for a couple months now, ever since uh, Jerry Richardson put it on the market. Scott, there's looks like there's three horses in this race. Um, it is, it is uh, Tepper. David Tepper. Navarro. And Ben Navarro. And then Cy Rubin. If this is just about dollars and cents, and I mean, we know Joe Cy is going to be a limited partner, so he can't write the huge check because he's not going to be the managing partner here. That would be Rubin. But if this is going to come down to who wants to write the biggest check, David Tepper can do it. But his history shows that he's a value investor. So is he going to overbid just to get this NFL team? His history suggests no. The NFL, if you're looking for strategic partners, they have already aligned themselves with Fanatics. They are an investor in the company. And to have access to Joe Tsai, who, by the way, also bought a 49% stake of the Brooklyn Nets with the chance to get control in three years, and his contacts in Asia, that has to be an attractive proposal to the NFL. Let's talk about the Fanatics-NFL relationship. The NFL owns a 3% stake in the e-commerce giant uh, Fanatics runs the NFL's online store. They run the online store for a number of teams in the NFL as well. The chances are, if you're <laughs> buying a jersey or a hat or something, you're going through Fanatics. Exactly. Does that help or hurt in in these in these talks? Is is that a plus for Michael Rubin as he as he tries total, to enter total this club? plus? You like to do business, especially in these sports leagues, when you're buying and selling with people you're comfortable with people you trust, and to have that existing relationship, to have sat across the table, shook hands, made deals, that only helps Rubin's cause. Let's talk about price for a second. Uh, Forbes says this Carolina franchise worth $2.3 billion. Uh, my gut tells me this sale might go in a little under that. What do you think? Right, right around there. Yeah, it's one of those where I think they got it right this time because of the national revenues. This is not one of the other leagues where it's so much involved in how much you keep locally. There's so much money that's shared in the NFL. You know what the media contracts are. We can take a pretty good guess, Eben, that the next media contracts in 2021-2022, they're only going higher. You have sports betting on the horizon. That will be ancillary revenue for NFL teams. So while we've heard so much about ratings, 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 concussions, concussions, all signs from a dollar sign perspective for the NFL for the near future, going nowhere went up. But you're talking about three strong people going for the Panthers. I mean, I, I, I don't know who's going yeah, to Yeah, but I would game. jump in differently. Then. I would say only three. Some years ago, you'd have five, six, seven, sure. eight. You, but what's happened now is the price of these franchises has gotten so high. I am now Michael Rubin. NFL rules say I have to put down 30% in cash, which means I have to cut a check if the price that we're talking about is right, $750 million, if I want to be the controlling partner, there's just a limited supply of people 
who have the net worth and the wherewithal to cut that check and who want to be involved. Worth mentioning also that there are a few other NFL teams that folks in the business world are expecting are going to be hitting the market at some point in the next couple of years. Uh, so a lot of people who might have been bit willing to bid on the Panthers if they thought that was their only shot at breaking into this club may also be waiting on another franchise. Very quickly, you mentioned about sports betting and next month the Supreme Court, they're going to have this in before them and they'll probably make their ruling what do you think, guys? We have talked about this for the past few months. Eben knows this well. Everybody is ramping up. All the non-sports betting companies are putting the infrastructure in place. They're putting the people in place. Eben's been out to Monmouth. I mean, you, what does that look like? Yeah, they down in Monmouth, New Jersey, the racetrack there. William Hill, the the, the famed London uh, broker uh, and 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 sports book. They've bought a bar there, and they're ready to move that as soon as possible when the Supreme Court makes its ruling, which could come next week. It could come next month. It could come anytime before June. Um, yes, this is going to have a monumental seismic impact on sports business. Let's talk about two other topics, and they both involve NASCAR. And probably the biggest one involves seven-time champion Jimmy Johnson and his sponsor, Lowe's, one of the last remaining corporate giants in NASCAR, announced that it will not sponsor Johnson's car after this season. That's not good news. Outside of the Confederate flag on the General Lee for Bowen Luke Duke, I can't think of many other things on, attached to a car that I'm familiar with. And I did know that Lowe's was Jimmy Johnson's car because he's Jimmy Johnson. And he's won so much and he's so visible. This is another brand that had aligned itself with the sport that is looking to put its dollars to work elsewhere. That has got to concern NASCAR. And not even not even limiting what it's putting in. It's going full stop. You know, they're going from 20 plus million dollars a year to be on the hood of the the best driver for what I understand one of the, the best if not the most famous drivers in NASCAR to nothing. You know, there's no middle ground there. They are out. As Scott mentioned, you look at the other companies, Target, Sprint, Farmers, Dollar General, GoDaddy. These are all companies that were big that? in NASCAR yeah. that have pulled out that? in the past couple of years. Well, part of this, too, is Home Depot pulled out. And I wonder if Lowe's stayed in longer than they wanted to. Lowe's is just saying that they're looking to put the money to use elsewhere. Different marketing plan. Um, and if they're not reaching... The target audience, you would think there'd be a great symbiotic relationship between the NASCAR fan and the home improvement buyer. But if that's not the case, who's watching? Who's going? Where do I go for sponsor money? Michael, if you're a young driver and you're seeing Jimmy Johnson lose lows after yeah. 17 years or whatever it's been, I can't imagine that's an optimistic view of the, of the future of the business side of your sport. Well, the sponsorship structure is like a dinosaur. Uh, you know, back in the day when Johnson signed, 2001, he signed with Lowe's, and that sponsorship was for all the races that were going to be in the Cup Series. And that used to be in the past. I mean, you think way back. Richard Petty had STP. They were there for the entire racing season. But those sponsorships and those deals, are they're dinosaurs now. Let's talk about NASCAR again, which is good news this time. Twitter, maybe. Twitter and NASCAR will again put racing fans in the virtual driver's seat, expanding their live streaming deal with 15 races during the second half 
of this season. Guys, I have a proposal for we do number of the week. We should do uh, OTT signing of the week or social media live well, rights well, of the well week. Well done. It, it does seem week. as though every yes. week we're talking again about last week Facebook. And, We'd have to and pick Major out of a hat baseball. though. There's two or three. <laughs> exactly. You could have like a roulette wheel going Twitter and sport. Um, yeah, certainly seems as though the, the proliferation as we talk about seemingly every week uh, of live rights shifting over to, to these social media giants, be it Facebook, be it, be it Twitter, Amazon, I would put in that category as well. Uh, doesn't seem to be stopping at any point. Now, here's the thing. This is great news for the young fans of NASCAR. But if you're an old geezer like me, it's like, my goodness, what's this Twitter thing? All of a sudden now, it's like, well, wait a minute. Uh, what, what happens here? It's like, how do I get this? They don't thing? care about your bar. You're on your Insta snap. <laughs> they don't care about your bar. How do I reach the consumers of tomorrow? That's what they're looking at. We need to bring up also about John Skipper. Yeah, uh, Jim Miller and the Hollywood Reporter answering the question Eben and I have been getting from so many people since Kipper, Skipper resigned at ESPN. Like, what, what happened? John Skipper says he had a, a recreational cocaine usage problem, but that he was being extorted by somebody he tried to buy cocaine from. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And Bob Iger said, you've compromised the company. You've compromised ESPN and Disney. You have to go. The interview is is pretty candid. There, there are still some questions out there, but it, it does bring to light, as Scott said, a mystery that's been kind of proliferating sports business for a while. And you can certainly understand why an executive, a high-ranking executive at a Disney company, uh, puts the company in a weird position if suddenly his cocaine use is going to be going public. Our thanks to Bloomberg Business of Sports reporter Eben Novi williams And now Scott and I speak with the athletic director of Syracuse University, John Wildhack. John spent many years at ESPN, rising through the ranks, becoming one of the most popular folks there, but decided to go back to his alma mater at a time when they were looking to start a network. It was an interesting decision then. It's an interesting decision now. Lots to do. John, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Good to be with you and Michael. Let me ask you on a on a very dollars and cents basis, what's the difference between making the NCAA tournament, whether it's playing game, whatever, you're in the field, making the tournament and missing the tournament? You know, from a pure dollars and cents, it's not, it's not astronomical uh, because ultimately the payout for the NCAA tournament, it's the payouts go to the conference and they're based on units that the conference earns and those units are based on how many teams and how far they advance and in, in the tournament. So, you know, obviously getting in as nice and getting in as many teams is terrific for the conference and then all the schools. And then the next step is, all right, how far can, how far can the teams advance? All right, so it's go Virginia, go North Carolina, go Duke from your perspective. But what about past that? What about the promotion of it all just for the program? How important is it to maintain that visibility? Well, I think for the for the program it's important. And, and last year we were on the bubble and we didn't get in. And you know this year, particularly with such a young team, you know to to make it, um, and that creates I think some anticipation and some uh, and some excitement. You know for next year, and you couple that with um, you know the kids that we have joining the program next year. So you know it, it's it all it's part of the narrative. Is is we think we've got a really young program. Um, in terms of the kids that are in it, um, as they mature and as they get a year of experience under their belt, you know, we'll be better next year. So I think that uh, that creates excitement amongst, uh, amongst the fan base. This is a question about vernacular because 
yes, we call it the play-in games, but when this first expanded to 68 teams, the NCAA did not like that phrase, play-in. Why? Yeah, Michael, I don't know. You'd have to ask the NCAA. Yeah, we're just we're, we're happy to be in the tournament, and uh, I think every all other 68 schools are happy to be in the tournament, and wherever you play or whatever round they want to call what, you know, what you play in um, is, you know, is immaterial. You're talking about teams here in the tournament, uh, first of all, that deserve to be there and that they they avoided going to the NIT and not trying to slam the NIT. But uh, just the, the prestige of being in the NCAA tournament, can you take us through that? Well, I think, you know, there's what, there's 350 schools that are playing D1 basketball about that number, so... You know, when you're one of the 68 that gets in out of you know of approximately 350, um, you know that says something about your about your program. And we got in obviously as an at large, and the number of at large berths are really relatively small because so many of the bids to the tournament go to uh, the automatic qualifiers, the conference tournament champions. So you know, in in that regard, if you're an at large. Uh, selection, I think that you know, is even more uh, telling about the uh, you know the accomplishments of the pro- of your program and how well respected your program is uh, within the you know within the basketball college basketball community. We are chatting with John Wildack, the athletic director at Syracuse University, a private school, John. So we don't get that look at the athletic statement that we see at the public universities, but generally, or as as mostly detailed as you can. How are things on the revenue and expense side of sports at Syracuse? Yeah, we work. Yeah, we work really. We work really hard um, every day. Is 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 every, any enterprise does is you want to maximize your revenue opportunities. You want to be as efficient as you can on your costs, and uh, you know, obviously, being part of the ACC conference you know, helps us in being in the Power Five group. And you know, we uh, you know we we try to manage the enterprise as, as smartly and uh, as, as efficiently as possible and to create really a great experience, you know, for 600 student-athletes. And, uh, and I, I think, you know, I'm pretty comfortable that, we, uh, that we're doing pretty well in that regard. Is it the same as most places where football and basketball are the lone money makers? Yeah, I mean, for, you know, for almost everyone, you know, every D1 school is, you know, your, your primary sources of, you know, of, of kind of ticket sales revenue, right, um, is going to be, you know, through football and men's basketball. I guess I'm going through some old history here, but for 36 years you were with ESPN, and then one day you decided, hey, I'm going to go to Syracuse to be the AD. Talk about those years at ESPN and what made you decide to take this job. I know I'm going over some old uh, ground because this is from like about two years ago, but what made you decide to go from ESPN for a long career to be the AD at Syracuse? Well, it's yeah, I've been here a little over a year and a half, Michael, and uh, my time at ESPN, I was there for you know, from a t- you know, time I graduated here, it was it was a remarkable experience and a remarkable run, and uh, it's one you know, I'm forever grateful for. Tremendous, very fond memories from the early days of the ESPN when we were we were nothing more than a startup, hoping to survive from day to day, to week to week, to month to month, and you know, ultimately, you know, the company grew into what it became, and you know, I've got uh, you know a lot of a lot of people um, who remain good friends to this day, and 
uh, we'll always uh, be good friends. And um, you know, the opportunity to come back here was was unique in that uh, it certainly wasn't anticipated. And when the opportunity arose, and I was first approached, um, you know, I, I was I was not. Uh, all that open to it, to be honest with you, because we uh, we really enjoyed Connecticut. My wife's from Connecticut. My kids are, you know, they were in a great situation there as well. So and the weather is so wonderful. In, the weather is so wonderful in Central New York. Don't I mean that's? Well, I tell you what, it's, it's I think it's nicer in Central New York than it is in Connecticut. Touche, <laughs> <laughs> you know, touche. I, I feel for those people. So. Um, you know, I think, you know, uh, we moved to Syracuse and the weather got better. That's my line, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> um, but, you know, on the opportunity arose, and after, you know, considered it, we talked about it as a family. Uh, you know, we want, it was something we decided, you know, that I wanted to pursue, and uh, and, uh, and I did it because of the, uh, you know, the affection that I have for this place and what uh, what it's meant to me in my career and the development of me as an individual. And what really sealed it is when I you know, was able to spend time uh, uh, Saturday morning with the chancellor and, and to get to know him. And I think it's really important. You want to, you know, you want to work for, for, for somebody that you respect is uh, in, 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 in all aspects of the word. And, and I, you know, I have tremendous respect for, uh, for chancellor Severud and privilege to, uh, to work for him and privilege and honored to be back here you're talking to a bunch of old hats so when i bring this up you, you, you're going to understand the importance of this when you were at espn you were part of history you were there for the first nfl game ever broadcast on espn i mean that was that was groundbreaking back then yeah michael was it when we got the nfl contract in 87 it was that really put espn on the map because that just gave the company so much credibility because the NFL obviously is is uh, is is the most successful and the most watched sports league by far. And uh, you know we were able to secure you know that that contract that uh, that legitimized ESPN as a company. And yeah, you know, I was uh, privileged to uh, and uh, to be selected to be the game producer when we uh, obtained the rights. And uh, you know that's. You know, on the on the on the career, you know, on the career highlight was that's certainly you know right up there near the top. There's no question. Hey, John, I'm Syracuse '92 Newhouse, and when I was there, I was literally using carbon paper on typewriter written scripts, taping them together, and feeding them into the teleprompter. And people say today, well, how has the media business changed <laughs> since you know? Well, one of the carrots for you, surely taking this job was the ACC Network, speaking of ESPN. Walk me through the mindset of how the business of media is changing college sports. Well, I mean, it's changed, (laughs) Scott, it's changed dramatically. And, you know, take college football for an example. Really used to be, you go back, you know, 20 years ago, it was a really regional sport. Right, you know, ABC did four games in the three thirty window, and they went to this twenty percent of the country here, and fifteen percent here, and forty percent here, and you know there was kind of, you know one maybe two windows a week. ESPN did a bunch of games on Saturday, and you know CBS was around with you know some Big East or you know Big Ten or whatever. And yeah, a regional sport though, with some with some pretty good national brands. Yeah. And it was, and it was a regional sport with national brands. It was one of the things that we did when, you know, at ESPN. We just said, hey, you know what, you know, this this is 
<laughs> this is a national sport. There are national brands, and we got to get out. Where you know the days of you know, well, we just televise things in regional windows. You know, we got to televise games nationally, and just it exploded. And I think you know, and that dovetailed with just you know the the explosion of linear options, right? Because you know, ESPN ultimately led to ESPN two, which ultimately led to ESPN U, um, which ultimately led to more windows on ABC as well. So you know, all of a sudden, you know, you, there is so many more possibilities to uh, to broadcast games nationally. It just wasn't ESPN either; it was you know other networks as well. So just the explosion in the linear world provided those options in those in in the ability to schedule you know more and more games on a national basis and now more recently uh the explosion of digital media i mean it's you know it's espn3 i mean there's no bandwidth restrictions whatsoever so you know you can you, there there is no limit to how many games you can televise is there enough content out there for all of these new platforms that seem to be yeah. popping up yeah, I mean, it's amazing because, and that's always been, hey, you know, all right, go back to the early days of ESPN, 24 hours a day, seven days a week sports. I mean, you know, that's, that's ridiculous. But I, I yeah, like the you know, world's strongest you know, man competition, though. That that was Magnus ver Magnuson became a household name. <laughs> well, I mean, Australian rules football, too, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. You know, and the little, little monster truck pull, you can't forget those now, guys. Even barrel jumping, I love that. And how about darts? Yeah. You know, Chris <laughs> Berwin calling darts. I mean, you know, those, you know that's... You know, that's high-quality content, tongue-in-cheek. Um, but, there, you know, there's always been the question, hey, you know, is there, is, is there enough appetite, um, you know, for sports? And, and it's almost an insatiable appetite. Um, and, and sports has just grown. Its impact on our society and our culture has just grown exponentially, you know, in the, in the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. So there's, there's, plenty, there's plenty of content, and people, you know, people now, you know, they want the they want to see the game they want and they want it live and they're fine watching it on their iPad they watch it on their iPhone they watch it you know, wherever but they want to be able to watch it and that's something I wanted to expand on because now yes there are many people who are Syracuse fans and you don't have to be in the area around Syracuse just to enjoy it you can take it anywhere you can take it out to California you can take it down to Florida anybody who went to Syracuse or is a Syracuse fan can enjoy this across the nation and I want to ask you is that part of the reason why you think that streaming has become so popular no, no question, Michael. And I think you know, and like so many, you know, we're a national brand. Actually, Syracuse is an international brand. Um, so we, you know, we're we're just not geographically restricted to Central New York or New York State. We're we're a national brand, and we have the research to to back that up. And you know, I've seen that in my travels at ESPN, and since I've been back at Syracuse, you know, and I wear something with that block S. That's you know, that's that's recognized and respected. And we're international as well. Ten percent of our student athletes are, are international. We have kids from Australia. We have kids from Europe. We have kids from Canada, um, the continent of Africa. So it's you know, sports is global, um, and our brand is global. In uh, in other schools, uh, same thing for other schools. I know when you don't want to discuss business at the dinner table, but when you mention the Block <laughs> S, that brings in a lot of money to the the merchandise, uh, you know, from jerseys and and so on. Can can you expand on that? 
Well, I just, you know, I think when you have a, you know, when you have a brand, when you have a great brand, which we do, you know, part of what, you know, people want to become associated with that brand. And it's, you know, it's whether it's your fans, whether it's your sponsors, whether it's, you know, media networks. Um, and we're fortunate to have a, a, you know, a brand which, which is, you know, A, highly respected, you know, recognizable and international. So, you know, we're going to, we're going to leverage that to, to our ability and do so in a way that benefits, you know, benefits all our sports and benefits the university, just not athletics, but the university as well. Because, listen, we're, you know, we're, we're in some ways, we're a marketing arm for the university. And, uh, and we want to be a great partner in that respect. Ah, the front porch. And we're chatting with John Wildack, the athletic director at Syracuse University. And that's I don't know if it's the front porch, Scott, but it's one of the porches. Yeah, but either way, there's snow blocking my exit and entrance. I can tell you that much. Where do you stand? Where do you stand on the pay the players, don't pay the players debate? I think if you begin to pay, you know, if you begin to pay the players, then you know there is no no amateurism whatsoever. And I think ultimately, you know, what it could lead to is you know is you know you might have twenty schools, you know, that can really exist and compete in that type of environment, and and the other schools won't be able to. And I just, you know, I, I think. And I understand people who who say players should be compensated, but you know, go back to what you said earlier. You know, football and primarily for most places, football, men's basketball, you know, they support you know the Olympic sports. So if you begin to pay players, all right, what's the impact on Olympic sports? Um, if you pay players, you're really taking into account the value. You know, of a scholarship, which at a place like Syracuse is significant. Um, you take, you know, everything else that we do in a sense from, you know, academic support, um, you know, from, you know, training, rehab, development, educational development, personal development, human development, you know, things outside of athletics. And I just, I think if you get into the pay, the pay model, I think, uh, uh, I think the ramifications would be, would be extraordinary. Well, speaking of development and redevelopment, where do things stand with the upgrade of the Carrier Dome? You know, the, uh, you know, the Dome is, you know, Scott, you know, the Dome's iconic. It's one of the great, uh, one of the great arenas in the country, just not, you know, just not a college arena, but one of the great arenas, one of the most visible. And the first thing we want to do is, is make a decision, all right, what, and I don't pretend to be an architect or, or an engineer at all, but, all right, you know, we've, we know we've got a shelf life, we have to replace the roof, so what type of roof do we want to put on there? And then, you know, from there, that will allow us to, to, to get a sense, all right, what else can we do, what other amenities to, uh, you know, do we, uh, do we want to make? But the first thing is, all right, what are we, what are we going to put, uh, what kind of roof are we going to put on top of the dome? So what kind of roof are you going to put on top of the dome? Don't know yet. <laughs> we're, you know, we're studying that and, uh, and hope to be able to make a recommendation to uh, uh, you know, later this spring. Is the state kicking in money? At this point, our focus, you know, my focus is totally you know, more on, on the dome, the project, the roof, that type of thing. Um, you know, there's been, you know, there's been no... Yeah, I've not been in any conversations you know, with, with, with anyone you know, in terms of financing, et cetera, that type of thing. Well, since this is a sports business program, some of the time, or a good chunk of the money, sometimes comes from naming rights. Carrier has the rights in perpetuity. That deal was done a long time ago. There has been some talk about renegotiation or ending if the dome in this new development becomes sort of a what would be construed as a totally new facility or different from the one that they signed the deal with. Have you had any constructive talks with Carrier about either paying up or moving on? 
I think it's premature because we've got to we've got to decide what we're going to do first. We're talking with the athletic director at Syracuse University, John Wildhack. Next month, the U.S. Supreme Court make a decision about gambling outside of just Nevada, and this could be the last NCAA tournament where you can only bet in Nevada. Now, I bring this up for two reasons. One, your thoughts about that. And two, and I hate to be Captain Coldwater. And two, you're a problem game. Well, that's that's, (laughs) true. We knew that. Captain Coldwater, Michael. (laughs) This is is something I, I worry about because now if this goes across the nation, what are the odds of any college uh, somebody trying to influence the kids to saying, hey, do something sinister and I will pay you this. That's something that sticks in my mind. So I'd like to ask if you can comment on both of those. Well, I think obviously, you know, the entire sporting world, uh, you know, is keeping their eye on, on the Supreme Court and in, uh, in ultimately you know, the ruling and the decisions they'll make and the ramifications you know, of that. And again, you know, college is part of it, but it, it's going to impact, uh, potentially impacts every sport uh, as we know it today. And I think the integrity, you know, the, the integrity of the competition, I think anybody who's in sports, whether you talk to me, you talk to my peers, you talk to conference commissioners, you talk to Roger Goodell, you talk to Adam, you know, Gary Bettman, you know, you, you know, uh, uh, Rob Manford, the integrity of, of the competition and protecting the integrity of the competition is actually, you know, is absolutely sacrosanct. And, you know, anything that infringes upon that, um, you know, ultimately can be, you know, can be very, very, you know, can be damaging to uh, to any sport or all sports. And I just want to clarify that, too. I'm just bringing a blabbing what-if scenario. Obviously, uh, we know of no college today that is going right. through that scenario. I just wanted to bring that up there. So, Right. John, how big a task, how would you describe the task uh, that Jimmy Pataro faces stepping in for John Skipper at ESPN? Well, I think, I mean, Jimmy inherits, you know, a company, and, and I think, you know, the, the, the reports, it's kind of like Mark Twain, right? <laughs> um, you know, the reports of ESPN demise are, 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 are way, 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 way premature. Um, you know, ESPN's the best sports brand out there. Um, ESPN is an enormously successful company. Um, the challenges that ESPN face are, are not unique to ESPN. Um, they face, you know, they face every media company and that's, you know, and there's obviously been some cord cutting, no question, subscriber loss. ESPN feels the impact of that more than others because of the fees they generate on a, on a monthly basis. But the company's still in, incredibly, incredibly successful, has a terrific, uh, portfolio of rights, um, you know, has been ahead of the game in terms of digital media. You know, going back, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, ESPN was first to kind of embrace streaming, you know, to watch ESPN. Uh, now you've got, you know, the ESPN Plus service, which will launch this spring, you know, which will be a complement to the ESPN linear services and really allow for more customization, you know, for the consumer if they're passionate about certain sports. Etc. That type of thing. So I think ESPN is incredibly well positioned. Um, you know, the, the leadership team at ESPN that Jimmy will work with is is very very strong. 
Um, it's it's you know an incredibly group of smart, talented, uh, dedicated, creative people. Um, you know, Jimmy and, and ESPN has been blessed. Um, Disney's been a great owner. Um, Bob Iger's been you know a tremendous supporter of ESPN. The time that I was there, when it came to renewing major rights deals, you know, Bob was always you know very very supportive, you know, of of, of what we wanted to do. And um, you know, I think I think Jimmy uh, I think Jimmy inherits a, a, a pretty. Uh, I think he inherits a, a company that's uh, that's that's very well positioned. Yeah, Bob was very supportive. But as you know, the price for entry for those rights has just absolutely mushroomed. The NBA was 3x from its previous deals. Got to look over your shoulder to Amazon, to Facebook, just got baseball games. Can you envision a world where just the price for, let's say, the NFL, because you said before, that's, that's the monster, that's the big ratings draw. Can you envision a world where ESPN can say, you know what, it's a better decision for us to walk away from live NFL games and show highlights. Ultimately, Scott, that day could come, but I'm not sure it will come. You know, the one thing you know, in the NBA deal has been criticized, and I, I was there when we did it, is I think you know that deal long term and, and just to swap the rights that ESPN acquired in that deal and the breadth of rights, you know, I think is 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 you know is, is immense. Not only just linear, but also digital. You can globally scale the NBA in in myriad Absolutely. ways. Absolutely, and I think the, you know ESPN will do that. The other thing that ESPN did is, you know, they made a bet on the NBA. But you know what ESPN didn't do is, you know, and I was there then is we chose not to renew NASCAR as much as we enjoyed, you know, the people at NASCAR, and you know that was. You know, that was a lot of money in terms of rights, production, marketing, et cetera, that type of thing. You know, there's some other things that we passed on as well. So, you know, we, we became more selective and we thought NBA, and I think that's good, proven to be right, we saw NBA as an, an ascendant property. And I think it's proven to be that way. And I think over the long term, I think that'll, you know, that'll be proved to be a smart deal, not only for ESPN, but also Turner as well. Because remember, I mean, you know, Turner, you know, Turner paid the, you know, similar increase to yep. as ESPN did. And I think if you, Scott, if you called our fellow alum David Levy, he would echo, you know, exactly what I just told you in terms of, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the ascendancy of uh, of the NBA. Oh, he'd echo. Now, he's been he's been on the show before, by the way, and none of us get a word in edgewise. <laughs> <laughs> One question, well, and with David's like, thanks for joining I'm us. Not gonna, I'm not gonna, you know, next time I'm, I'm going to filibuster. I'm not going to let you guys ask any questions. <laughs> I'm on a filibuster. We're going to make Levy a verb. He just Levy. I'm going to talk about Dino Babers. I'm going to talk about getting better in football. I'm going to talk about Q and our women's basketball program. And I, you know, I can go on and on. Um, but you mentioned, you know, you mentioned the... You know, you know, whether it's Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, that type of thing, you know, and obviously Facebook did their deal with MLB. I, all this proves to me is is the power of sport and the power of sports content is when you get new entrants into the marketplace to compete for rights. And obviously, you know, whether it's, you know, Facebook, whether it's Amazon, they certainly have the scale to do so. That just underscores, you know, that underscores the power of, of sport. And I think, that, you know, you can, you can monetize sport in ways um, that you can't monetize, tra- you know, traditional entertainment programming, per se. So I think there'll always be very, very robust competition for the highest profile 
sports properties, I mean, whether that's the NFL, um, you know, college Power Five conference rights, the college football playoff, you know, MLB, you know, the NBA, the NFL. There's all, you know, there's always going to be because there's there's only so much of that type of content available. John Wildhack, the athletic director at Syracuse University. What a joyed person to talk to. Thank you so much for joining us. Michael, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Scott, thank you. Takeaways from the interview with John Wildhack. I think the thing that impressed me the most, here's a guy that had been with ESPN for 35-plus years, and all of a sudden here comes the job at Syracuse. He takes it, and he brings all that experience of the producing that he did at ESPN. He brings it over to Syracuse. This this is a guy, uh, obviously, who knows sports and seems to be doing a good job. Yeah, the takeaway from it is look who the universities are looking to place in these positions. Used to be sort of administrator. It was the old, the the AD was the administrator of the program. Now it's a guy with 30 plus years in media, in digital, in contract negotiations with networks and with sports properties. That's where the business of college sports is going. You heard John in the interview talk about it as one of the big four or five sports right up there with NFL, NBA, and college, when you put it in its totality, it's like a major U.S. sports league, and the media is going to drive the revenue moving forward, just like all the other sports. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Time now for the number of the week. And we have to thank a podcast listener. Thank you so much for sending this in. The number is 600. And I know our listener, Hart Orenstein, (laughs) who said, why don't you, for the podcast, give Alex Ovechkin some love for joining the number 600 goal club. That's a lot of goals, Michael Barr. I mean, you've got Gretzky up top, of course, but there's only 17 or 18 folks in NHL history who have 600 goals. And the fact that he plays for Ted Leonsis, and we've had Zach on this show, and they're trying to go international, and they're loving digital, and Alex Ovechkin is going to be a big part of any push they make around the world, and him joining this rarefied air. Let's not forget, his nickname is The Great Eight. That's right. But we, we left the eight alone. We, made, we went for the 600 <laughs> because he reached that milestone. Pretty impressive feat. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time exploring the world of money and sports. I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Scott Soschnick. Thanks for joining us. And please tune in next week when we speak with the biggest and brightest in the sports business industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world and online as an Apple podcast on iTunes. 